All right, guys, on today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, we have a very special guest. I'm, I'm very excited. It's been a long time in the making. Actually, I'm a little surprised this didn't happen earlier because without this guest, there would be probably no Trade Busters as we know it today. You know, the foundations of PCR, premium capture rate, I've mentioned before, uh, he was inspirational uh, to everything that's developed. So, of course, we have today none other than Karsten Yeska aka Papa Earn, aka Big Earn. Uh, for those who um, don't follow me or Big Earn, you may not have heard of him, but he's quite uh, well-known in the fire community, a very well-known blogger that I've followed for a while. So first of all, Karsten, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your background first? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm originally from Germany. And I came to the United States in the uh, late 90s, came here for my PhD in economics. And um, after finishing that, um, instead of going into academia, I kind of went into semi-academia. So I started at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. I did that for eight years uh, as a research economist there. And back of my mind, I always had this idea of going to Wall Street. So in 2007, 2008, I was looking around for jobs in the private sector. Uh, I had interviews with Lehman Brothers, AIG, and BNY Mellon. So luckily, I picked BNY Mellon, and they picked me. So that was good. Worked out very well. <laughs> and uh, so I started there in 2008, right when things got really icky. Uh, but I uh, actually was a fun job. I worked there in asset management uh, for a, uh, a subsidiary of BNY Mellon. It's called Mellon Capital at that time. It was in San Francisco. It uh, was a really fun experience uh, learning all the things about finance. Uh, so I was an econ background, so you know a little bit of finance, but uh, so sort of merging your skills there with, uh, uh, with macroeconomics and finance. And then I worked in the uh, global asset allocation team. So you, you again, merge uh, these medium to long-term macro signals with the financial strategy. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I did that for 10 years until 2018. And at that time, um, yeah, I, I had saved enough money and I said, hey, I, why, why be on this uh, hamster wheel until you're 67, right? So I, I pulled the plug and retired in 2018. And uh, so, uh, so my, my blog uh, is obviously, so I started that in 2016, writing about some of the uh, mathematical challenges in, uh, in early retirement, planning for early retirement, then living in early retirement. Uh, how do you take a fixed amount of money and transform that into basically a cash flow and a more or less reliable cash flow and constant cash flow uh, in retirement? And uh, so that's that's how I started my blog in 2016. Uh, and yeah, I've been writing about, um, obviously, safe withdrawal strategies. Uh, and then also, obviously, sprinkling in some of this option trading material. And it's, it's obviously more of a niche uh it's more of a niche area in the in the personal finance and especially in the in the in the fire crowd. But uh, it's, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of positive feedback, and um, so I'm uh, I'm I'm glad I, I'm also writing about that, not just about the the safe withdrawal math. Yeah, for sure, a lot of interesting topics. We'll we'll dive into that. But before I want to step back real quick and just let the audience know how I first came across your blog. So uh, people who follow me may know that I, I've been trying to develop and implementing all kinds of different strategies, mostly put writing, different tenors, longer dated, shorter dated, uh, you know, from 90 DT, 45 DTE. Sometime a couple of years ago, I was doing 7 DTE and I kept peeling them back shorter and shorter and eventually looked into kind of the 2 DTE, 3 DTE. And I had a friend, um, Ben Latz, who actually introduced me to your blog. He was actually a, a ex uh, member of the research team over at Tasty Trade, and he had done his own research into options. And he, I don't know how he found your blog, but he turned me on to Early Retirement Now, your blog, and mentioned that you were running a short dated put writing strategy. Um, and because on your website, you have a lot of different topics, but you know, you go to the start here, then you kind of categorize your blog posts into different categories. There's a derivative section, and of course, there's eight, nine, or 10 articles that you wrote throughout. The number of years on on put writing and of course the the the, the famous strategy that we're all running now uh mm -hmm. you have your own variation and at the time um the idea was one of your posts uh you talked about the idea of 
budgeting for you know because you're going to have a high win rate 95 percent winners or whatever and the occasional large loss which is fine but you kind of budget for how much you will keep and you set your sizing and your expectation based on that and the idea was you kind of have an expectancy of how much of your credit you keep net of all the losings and everything else and that was kind of the genesis of the premium capture rate and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later but that's how i first you know, came across you and how you inspired basically my entire body of work. So first of all, thank I you for, for everything that you do. And um, can you briefly just explain like what is fire and right. how did right. you, I, I know you mentioned you didn't want to do the whole hamster wheel, but like, was, was it then that you looked around like, how do I do this found fire or you knew about fire and then you decided to implement it. So what is it and how did it come across your table and you got interested in it? Yeah, I think, um, uh, I I've known that I wanted to retire earlier than the normal age, right? And uh, so that was probably planted into my brain long time ago. And um, certainly after I left grad school, right? And you 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 start your first job, and uh, so sometimes you have these days where you realize I, I'm not going to do this job until I'm 67 years old, right? So uh, and. Um, uh, and then, I mean, obviously, it, it also helps to have jobs that are extremely well compensated. So even at the Federal Reserve, it was was already very good salary. And then going to the private sector with a very generous base salary uh, and very generous bonus payments. Uh, so you, you almost uh, it's, it almost fits perfectly together, right? On the one hand, you have jobs that uh, are stressful, uh, and uh, you know you're not going to do that until you're in your 60s and 70s, right? I mean, you you come for the first time, and you you go you look on any trading floor, or you look in any uh, research department, you look at the age distribution there, and it's it's almost like this. Uh, this up or out arrangement that you have, say, say in, in, in legal firms or something like that, right? I mean, either you make it to a next step, you make it into management and higher management. You're, you're not going to be a research analyst uh, at a at a large Wall Street firm until you're in your 60s, right? I mean, either you make it to the, to the management level or you're out because they're just going to hire somebody uh, cheaper straight out of school. So you get, you get this... Uh, get this impression very quickly that you're not going to do this job uh, forever and you might as well take all of that uh, extra income that you don't need and and save it and invest it and uh, so that's and then of, of course what what also did the trick right i started uh, at bny mellon in march and i think that was the same week when bear stearns failed right and then six months later lehman brothers uh failed uh, so you you get the impression that yeah I mean you get a very high salary you get bonuses and everything but you you don't spend that money right you put that money on the side you you keep that as your precautionary savings uh, and uh, uh, so I've always had this in the back of my mind and as it has evolved obviously over time but what have, for example what evolves over time is your is your savings target right I mean you if you're really young you say oh I, I when I have one million dollars I'm going to retire right of course yeah then you reach one million dollars uh, net worth and well it's kind of anticlimactic I said well I'm not going to retire with just a million dollars right I mean I didn't go to grad school and I didn't get my CFA charter and all of this for then just retire on a million dollars and retire on a pretty tight budget. So you want to milk this a little bit longer, right? Because I mean, as, even though I know I don't want to do this job until I'm 67, it's not, it's not an awful job, right? It's not a dangerous job where I might lose my life or anything. Uh, so let's milk this a little bit longer. So obviously the targets and, and your plan evolves over time. But yeah, then at, at some point in late 2017, early 2018, right, the stars were aligned that uh, yeah, I mean, if I if I don't pull the plug now, then uh, there's really uh, as I I might never do it, and uh, so uh, I made the very wise decision to do it then because now we had uh, we had time more time for family life, more time to travel, so we traveled very extensively in 2018. We had seven months of travel in 2018, four months in 2019. Uh, very fortunate timing because we could do all of that before uh, all of the travel restrictions. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it worked out really well for us uh, in, in, in that sense. You know what's interesting? Um, and I've, I've listened to a few of your other recent podcast appearances and you mentioned that, you know, what is that? The question is, what is fire life like? What is it like after retirement? And of course, you just mentioned you did a bunch of traveling, but 
after that initial stint of you know just doing everything you wanted to do like w- once you're kind of settled into the, the more regular life what what is fire life like i i think people may have misconception is not just you know you, you pull the plug quit your job and you're just sitting there doing nothing i mean you've explained it right. as quite busy actually and and i see it's yeah. funny just today you mentioned we almost had to change our schedule because uh the snowstorm and then your kids bus route uh you know schedule got changed and so there's there's still life after retirement essentially so what's, what's that yes. like? Right, right. So it's it's not like we are retired and we just sit at the beach and uh, we drink umbrella drinks and stuff like that, right? So uh, we still have pretty much a pretty structured uh, life with, uh, you know, we get up every weekday at 6.30, get our daughter ready for school. I take my daughter to the school bus stop. I pick her up when she comes back from school. In between, I do my option training. It's actually perfect timing because uh, I'm on the West Coast. So 6.30 is the market open. 1 p.m. is the market close. So um, and uh, so you're done with your trading by 1 p.m. You have lunch. You pick up your daughter later and you got the afternoon to do other fun stuff. So uh, it's uh, it almost looks not too different from the average uh, middle class lifestyle. We, we have a small single family home in a, in a nice neighborhood. Uh, I mean, if people didn't know that I was retired, I mean, I, we, we would, we would look just like any other uh, couple uh, with a small kid in the school age kid in, in this neighborhood, especially nowadays, right? Where lots of people work from home. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always say that, you know, if you're bored in early retirement, I mean, it's a, you must be a boring person, potentially. I'm, I'm sorry to say uh, say that. It might step on some people's feet uh, or toes here. Uh, it's uh, I've never been bored a single single day in my in my life since I pulled the plug four years ago. So, I think it sounds like one of the differences is um, you get to choose what you want to do or prioritize right. your interest as opposed to being told what you have to do. Uh, you're doing some teaching now as well, right? Or you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I'm part of the uh, UC Berkeley extension program. So I taught a class last year in 2021, and I just signed up for a new class. And that's going to be in 2023. I think it's from February till May. And I'll teach uh, intro to macroeconomics. So it's, it's going to be fun. Nice. And uh, I think we, we didn't mention, although most people know, you know, FIRE, the FIRE movement stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Interestingly, your blog ERN, you know, early retirement now. Like, how did that first? How did you come up with that? Or what gave you that idea? Right, right. So, uh, I mean, you want to have a name that's memorable, right? So, earlyretirement.com obviously was taken. Um, Early retirement now was not taken, so I thought that was good. It also is good as a as an acronym, right? Earn, big earn. (laughs) Uh, If you watch the movie Kingpin. Big Earn, uh, Billy Murray, uh, great performance. If, if you're into bowling, uh, check that movie out. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and and so by the way, also in the beginning, I was uh, I was anonymous because you don't want to work for BNY Mellon and uh, signal to your employer, hey, I'll be out of here in two years because you you still want to milk this uh, gravy train a little bit longer. So, so I, I, I was. Um, I was anonymous and I liked this idea that people had given this uh, moniker earn to me or big earn. Uh, so uh, just to divert a little bit from my real identity. So that helped. And also in terms of like um, your vision, it may have changed, but like, what do you, let's say we're going to pitch the blog. Like, What is it? Is it a just a multiple kind of resources for people who right. want to apply fire or want to live that style or is it just mostly education like what what do you what do you see as the kind of the purpose of your blog now right so i mean the the main purpose of course is i have this uh, safe withdrawal rate series right so where i look at is by by the way in that safe withdrawal rate series i haven't really written much about um, the option trading part so there i look basically just at the standard asset classes and uh, try to understand how do you take a fixed amount of money transform that into a cash flow what are the risks there and uh, so the reason actually why I wrote this is that because I thought when initially, you know, you retire, you want to do early retirement, surely there has to be a lot of information out there on the internet uh, to, to educate me. And I didn't see anything that fit my uh, academic uh, standards for 
robustness and and clarity uh, and applicability. I mean, obviously, you you see something like the like the Trinity study, right? And the Trinity study is that well, you take somebody who wants to retire for thirty years and they have a flat spending pattern. And then that's it. And then they look at different portfolio locations and and failure probabilities. And but I, I'm I'm not that average retiree, right? So we have obviously not a, a flat spending pattern. If you retire early, uh, you might have this challenge where in the beginning you have to withdraw more, and then eventually when you're uh, anywhere between 62 and 67, then you take social security. You also get maybe a, a, a corporate pension. So there are these additional cash flows that are coming in later. So shouldn't I be able to raise my withdrawal rate a little bit in anticipation that I don't have to withdraw this much forever? I can scale it down a little bit when I'm retired. Or on top of that, maybe, you know, when you're 70 or 75 years old, uh, if you stay healthy, you probably would scale back your retirement spending anyways. I don't think you're going to scale back your retirement spending, say, between age 45 and 65. You might actually increase it, right? Because you... Uh, if you're 45 years old, you, you might still rough it in retirement and, uh, you know, you arrive somewhere on the train station. Oh, it's only half a mile to walk. Uh, we can just walk to the hotel. Whereas if you're a little bit older, you might, you might trade off some money for comfort or comfort for money. Uh, so you, you might want to tra travel more comfortably, uh, do more expensive types of vacation. So instead of doing, doing a backpacking trip, you would do a cruise and on a, on a daily basis, that's obviously more expensive. So there are all sorts of factors that I wanted to consider and uh, realized, well, unless I build that tool myself, um, uh, nobody's going to build it for me. So I have to do it myself. Uh, so, so obviously, so that's, that's a big chunk of my blog, uh, but I write about anything, right? I mean, uh, so I write about the option trading. I write about general uh, financial topics. Right? For example, in May 2022, I wrote a blog post: "Crypto is probably a bad investment." <laughs> and um, and so, and I, I want to stress, right? So everything I write, so these are my own ideas, right? So this is not something where, hey, I read something on the Bogleheads, and then I suddenly declare myself an expert on safe withdrawal rates, and then I have you write about this, which sometimes you find that in the in the fire community. But so everything I write is really my is really my thinking, and you're not going to read it anywhere else. Uh, and uh, so, so for example, what I did there was I I, I talked about well, what if we put crypto um, uh, returns with their correlations and and variances and covariances uh, and expected returns into uh, into a uh, uh, efficient frontier diagram, right? Do, do, would you even want to do crypto uh, at any kind of interesting range of the uh, expected return and expected risk portion. So I, I, I write just general purpose uh, finance content that something that comes to my mind sometimes. I, I mean, a lot of my content right now is because I, after so many years, I probably ran out of my own idea. So now I write a lot of posts probably. Well, people ask me questions in the comment section or in my forum, and uh, then I write a blog post about that or something that I read uh, something that I read on the news. Uh, so it's a, it's just general personal finance content that you probably are not going to find anywhere else. I wanted to ask a little bit more about your SWR or safe withdrawal rate work, because right. that does seem to be a big part of what you do. And admittedly, it's not a section I myself have focused a lot on because I guess, quote unquote, it doesn't apply to me yet. Although maybe, like I said, maybe sometime down the road, but you mentioned why is it that you think there isn't something similar out there, especially with, I guess, maybe the popularity of the fire movement or other, I'm sure there's hundreds of blogs out there. Um, is there really just there hasn't been this cross section of your financial, your background in finance with your interest in implementation of fire movement just hasn't been that cross section of knowledge and interest that there hasn't right. been that level of detail or academic rigor applied to this, as you said? Yeah, I think there's many reasons. So I think that um, part of it is a skill set, right? So, um, uh, so, and part of it is also, uh, it's. I think it's a little bit of a PR uh, movement in the fire community, right? So you, in order to bring more people into the fire community, right? You you want to. Um, 
you want to send a message that saving for retirement is actually not very difficult, right? If you if you point out that something is very difficult, that people say, because you have so many excuses not to plan for early retirement, right? I mean, so many distractions, so many so many advertisements you see where people uh, find ways to to part with your money, uh, and um, uh, so you you don't uh, so obviously so that that's 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 one reason right so you you don't want to send a signal that early retirement is actually hard uh, especially the, the the mathematical challenges in the uh, in the uh, in the withdrawal phase I mean is obviously uh, in the accumulation phase you could actually make the case that the math of accumulating assets is relatively easy right I mean uh, so you you just do regular savings right and then uh, if you have it, say, uh, right after you start accumulating money, you have a big recession in the bear market, like uh, like the 2000s or the 2008 and nine. Uh, some people correctly point out that, well, you know what? If you're still accumulating assets, you don't even have to worry so much because I, I actually experienced that firsthand uh, twice, both in the dot-com crash and then in the, uh, uh, in the global financial crisis. Uh, because I got my first job right around the dot-com crash, and then I got the big pay raise and increased my savings right around uh, the global financial crisis. Then if you increase your savings or you or you start your savings right, right around that crash, yes, obviously your first few contributions, they take a little bit of a beating, but then you do that dollar cost averaging through the trough. And I mean, obviously, some of my best investments, if I look at my Fidelity account, some of my best tax lots are uh, the money that I invested in March 2009, right? When the S&P was trading at 700, actually slightly below 700 points, right? Now it's about, at about 4,000 points. And um, so you have to worry a lot less about a recession and bear market right around the corner if you accumulate assets, right? Uh, the other, uh, so... Whereas if you're in retirement, you very well have to worry about a recession right around the corner, uh, and that's because because you're facing the opposite uh, impact now, right? So so sequence of return risk means that you withdraw assets when they are really beaten down. So you have to withdraw more shares uh, to fund the same amount of uh, of dollar spending. And uh, so what 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 doesn't really matter so much for your retirement success. Your your average return over the next thirty years is not as important as the distribution of when did you have good returns versus bad returns. So if you have really bad returns early in retirement, uh, your uh, your retirement success is is definitely very much threatened. Uh, whereas if you retire, in fact, uh, irony is, so I retired in two thousand eighteen. It was a little bit of a bumpy ride in two thousand eighteen, but well, after that, two thousand nineteen, and then even two thousand twenty and twenty one were very good years. So I got pretty much lucky that um, I retired, and then we had another stretch of very good returns after that. But you you can't really plan for this, and you can't uh, uh, you should actually plan for well, what happens if I retire today, and then tomorrow we have another. Um, pandemic recession or global financial crisis, and uh, uh, so and it sounds to me that people in the fire community are not really spending enough effort on that because it's obviously bad PR. You don't you don't want to scare people away from uh, from from your blogs and from your community. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, one more question about that before we move on to the options is, you know, the term safe withdrawal rate that kind of is self explanatory what that is about, but what what is it that you do differently? Like, because I've I've heard some of your podcasts and your work sometimes it seems like it doesn't align with some of the typical literature out there. And people talk about like the typical four percent or whatever. Like, are you just doing? And I know you do case studies, so are you just giving a bunch of variable? Are you just looking at different situations and like that whole series? Is that meant to be kind of like a tool for people to understand how it works and so they can do the variables and kind of plan for themselves depending on their own situation, how they might want to look at say withdrawal rate or whether or not that changes throughout the retirement cycle yeah yeah good point so i mean there, there are two things that i do differently and um so the first so i think that we should do a much better job at custom tailoring a safe withdrawal rate so i always compare this we are all wearing different shoe sizes and uh, but somebody could obviously come up and say well you know if we should all wear size 10 shoes and probably on average that's okay 
most people uh, will probably be okay with that, but uh, would be much too small for me, which uh, much too big for other people. And uh, well, we shouldn't do the same with uh, safe withdrawal rates, right? So because uh, different people have different uh, preferences and parameters. Uh, so for example, my personal example, and, and a lot of other people in the uh, fire community, we, we don't really retire at age 28 or 31 or something like that, right? I mean, these are these are the, the really quote-unquote crazy people that you read about in the news. Uh, but the, the normal retiree, early retiree, right? I mean, they, they pull the plug somewhere maybe in the mid to late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and then they have this two-step uh, approach, right, where you have to just bridge the time until you reach uh, your social security. And then especially with two working spouses, sometimes you have so much in additional cash flow later on. I mean, you would be crazy to do just the 4% rule, right? You can do a lot more than 4%. On the other hand, if you're a 30-year-old retiree, right, and you basically have to bridge 30 or 40 years until Social Security, and then even if you get Social Security, it's not going to be that much because you haven't worked that long, um, you probably have to be way below 4%, right? So there, there's the idiosyncratic element where you have to custom tailor your, uh, your safe withdrawal rate. And, um, and just this idiosyncratic component, right? I mean, that could your safe withdrawal rates, they could range anywhere between 3% and 6%, right? And and the people say, well, it's, it's only 3% difference. No, it's actually not 3% difference because from three to six, that's actually a 100% increase, right? Uh, right? So people sometimes get this wrong. Uh, you know, don't don't listen to financial advice if the person giving you financial advice doesn't doesn't know how to do percentage calculations, right? So because if you have a three percent withdrawal rate versus six percent withdrawal rate, so out of a million dollar portfolio, that's a difference between thirty thousand dollars and sixty thousand dollars. It's not three percent difference; it's a hundred percent difference. Right. Um, so so that's that's the one thing, and uh, uh, so. That is obviously something that people routinely ignore, and there's a huge impact on your safe withdrawal rate. The other thing that people routinely ignore is uh, market valuations, right? And and you you kind of sometimes read through even and the, the, what what I find shocking is that uh, even in the Trinity study, even so, these are supposedly. Uh, allegedly, uh, finance professionals, uh, they write some pretty pretty shocking stuff where they just make this out to be a probability. You know, you have a X percent probability of success if you retire with a 4% rule. Well, <laughs> well, well, it should be con conditional on equity valuations, right? If you had retired with a 4% rule at the bottom of the, uh, uh, of the Great Recession or at the bottom of the dot-com crisis or at the bottom uh, of the Great Depression, you have a zero percent failure probability. I mean, don't 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 tell me about probability. So the, these people make this out to be unconditional probability. So these probabilities have to be made conditional on equity valuations, right? Because you look at where did the failures occur? The failures all occurred when equities were very expensive, uh, and um, the the other extreme tail events, right, where somebody would have retired with a million dollar portfolio and then after 30 years and withdrawing 4% every year they end up with 5 million dollars so the so the positive tail events they all happen when equities are really beaten down and you retire when equities are really cheap uh, and the and the negative disasters those are the negative tail events and the and the and the retirement failures they normally happen when equities are really expensive right 1929 uh, 1960s. Uh, we don't know yet about 2000, but could be, could not be. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and uh, so the fact that this is made out to be a an unconditional probability is is just mind blowing. I I I think that's uh, that's almost financial malpractice uh, if you sell this as an unconditional probability. It has to be done, especially if we are finance professionals and we have we have a finance background. And I know. Valuation is sometimes a very challenging signal, right? Uh, it's it's a very challenging signal if you try to predict equity returns over the next day or month. You're looking at valuation, uh, but certainly, say over ten years, there is a very strong correlation between equity valuation and expected equity returns. And uh, so, so for for that reason, just just uh, conceptually, we should only talk about conditional 
safe withdrawal rates and conditional success probabilities and failure probabilities. So conditional on uh, mostly equity valuations. You could also extend it to bond valuations, obviously. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, the big hitter obviously is, is the equity valuation. And if you don't, if you don't do that, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, that, that, that's just a, it's kind of a useless study. I always use this analogy, the probability of getting into a traffic jam. Um, and um, instead of, so that is conditional on the time of the day, right? So if you, if you wanted to do a study about the probability of getting into a traffic jam, and then you say, well, I'm sending a person out to downtown at midnight, at 1 a.m., at 2 a.m., at 3 a.m., and so on, as one, once top of the hour, right? And then I look at, well, it's only four out of 24 times, so it's only only one in six probability of getting into a traffic jam. But unfortunately, the traffic jams, they are all very concentrated at 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. and at 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. So if you already know that you are going to downtown at 8 a.m. in the morning, your probability of getting into a traffic jam is not one in six. It's potentially 100% uh, traffic jam probability. And, so, and it's the same with uh, with the probabilities and that, but but that's how the, but that's how the Trinity study is concerned, and this is how some people interpret the Trinity study, and they say it's only a four percent chance of of running out of money. Uh, well, but the cape is potentially at thirty five, or um, I guess now it's a little bit lower. But uh, people were were uh, bloating out this stuff like, yeah, it's very low probability of running out of money, but uh, the cape was close to forty. Uh, probably, I would. Uh, take the conditional probability, not the unconditional probability there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for the explanation. I, at some point, I'm definitely going to go back through the old post and, and work through that series again. But uh, now I, I want to talk about the options um, strategy because you know part of getting ready for retirement is having kind of that diversified portfolio. You know, you have the the stock portfolio. You you talk about real estate, and I think you did some kind of the private syndication stuff, which I'm familiar yeah. with as well. But then comes the options, which, like you said, is niche, right? And a lot of other people in retail community, fire community may not even know about this or think options are dangerous. And, and how did you first decide? I mean, is it just because you had the finance background already or maybe not even necessarily? Like, how did you even get started learning about options, doing options and deciding to do an option strategy as part of the retirement um, portfolio? Right. So, I mean, if, if you were in the in the business, right, in finance and economics, so you would have heard something about some of the academic research. So, for example, there's some academic research that points out that uh, realized volatility is less than implied volatility. Of course. Uh, not all the time. Uh, not On average, overall. But yeah. on average, it yeah. is, right? And um, so, and, and it has to be, right? Because if somebody insures against a, a volatile portfolio, right? You can't just give them just the expected value of, of a risk-free asset. You have to pay them, uh, basically you have to pay people um, essentially an equity risk premium, right? Or, or something related to the equity risk premium. So there has to be uh, uh, some payoff, right? Um, there is this uh, this research by uh, what's his name Whalen, the, the the guy who actually invented the the VIX, or he developed the the VIX, right? So pointing out that uh, these covered call strategies and and short put strategies uh, that they have actually relatively attractive uh, a very attractive uh, risk versus return trade-off so so there's some research out there uh, that uh, people have read and obviously I have read uh, the the other the other reason is just conceptually right I mean you look at what are some of the most profitable financial, businesses it's insurance companies right? right i mean you look at uh so i i lived in san francisco for a long time and until they built that ugly uh, salesforce tower the, the most prominent uh building is the transamerica pyramid uh if you look from across the bay uh towards san francisco or even from the golden gate bridge it's just beautiful skyline and one of the most prominent places there's the transamerica pyramid right so insurance companies are really really profitable and now insurance companies, obviously, they have the advantage of, you know, they can diversify risk across different agents all at the same time. Whereas if we sell options, right, you do one day to expiration options, well, you, you get a little bit of diversification, but the diversification is over the, say, 250 or so trading days a year. It's a little bit scarier because, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're not going to make money every single day. Whereas, you know, if you're 
if you're insuring drivers, you potentially you should make money every day as Geico or, or Progressive. But I mean, say home insurance, right? There could be some uh, some macro events with big fires or um, big uh, events that that take out uh, uh, not just the average uh, number of houses that you expect, but maybe a little bit more. But I mean, so so just conceptually. Uh, if you write uh, put options, you sell insurance, and insurance is an inherently uh, um, profitable business. Also, in the uh, in in when I was working for BNYML, and our uh, clients were usually very sophisticated, um, very sophisticated institutional investors. So these are pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, uh, endowments and stuff like that. And um, sometimes sometimes family offices. So, so people that are so rich, they have their own um, investment staff. And we would be talking to them also very sophisticated people with PhD, CFA charters and stuff like that. And then they always, uh, so, and we would try to market our uh, investment products to them. And, they, and then they all... Two out of three times, they will show their bona fides as being very sophisticated um, um, uh, finance professionals. They will tell you, oh, yeah, we do a lot of uh, callers. Right? So we have an equity exposure, and then we sell the upside, uh, the call option out of the money, but we also buy a put option. And uh, we almost we usually keep the premiums about the same. And so we, we've used it. So we still capture the equity risk premium, but we have a lot of downside insurance and uh, we sell a little bit of the upside insurance uh, of the of the upside potential. And um, and uh, boom, there you go. Right. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people demand this downside insurance and it's not. It's not unsophisticated people. Right? It's very sophisticated people, and um, and in a lot of cases, this is basically a, it's basically like a principal agent problem, right? It's in economics, you, you talk about principal agent problems where people who are managing something for somebody else, they might not always uh, they, they might just do some kind of a CYA cover your cover your behind uh, kind of strategy. Because you have to do that, right? Because you uh, you're managing somebody else's money. You want to at least show that. Look, I am doing some kind of risk management, and I do the risk management, even if it's a little bit expensive, and even if it uh, reduces our expected returns a little bit. Uh, we have to do it because if something goes wrong, I want to be able to show that. Look, I I did at least this uh, to to mitigate the downside. And uh, nice thing is, I. I run my money. Uh, I have to answer to my wife, and uh, if 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 I have a bad day where my put options go in the money, uh, I I just tell my wife, yeah, we lost the we lost kind of the equivalent of uh, maybe three times the the car we have. <laughs> it's okay, right. we're gonna make the money back. Uh, and um, uh, so th th there are there are many different bits and pieces of evidence where. Uh, yeah, I mean, this has got to be a, a profitable strategy, and it's probably going to stay profitable for a while uh, until, yeah, maybe, maybe eventually more people will pick this up. But um, I, I'm, I'm still hopeful until, until I'm in my maybe sixties or seventies. I'm pretty sure I can milk this. So yeah, I mean, you're basically this whole time been talking about the the volatility risk premium which i i think i believe will be persistent for a long time too and, and we, we should tell people that ultimately the the big risk is with the sizing right for, for this right. is, is very negatively skewed so when you lose because right. you don't use a stop you lose big but as long as you size it small you know your drawdown is, is manageable and and I, i've done a whole bunch of episodes on you know the, the compounding and the asymmetric between positive and negative compounding and all that um, did you always start um at the short dated options, or did you experiment with longer dated ones and just landed on the shorter dated ones? Or how was that right. evolution uh, when you first started yes. out? I, I kept it as short dated as possible. And then obviously with the innovations where they started then with the Monday and Wednesday, and then then Tuesday and Thursday options. So I made it as short as possible because uh, oh, so you were doing uh, weeklies I, at first when it was only Fridays or whatever? Right. Seven days. Right. Okay. So it. I was doing weeklies. And of course, that sometimes went wrong, right? Because yeah. I mean, you could do something on a Friday and it looks still good on Monday and Tuesday and then totally unravels on, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, so, so the good news was that when I did that, I still did it with, a, with an account that was small enough that uh, it was basically just play money. Right? And then money comes in and I... 
I grew my account. So, and then 2018 was when I did this with some serious money, right? And then I think in 2018, it I was well. already doing that the Monday, Wednesday, well. Friday office. Yeah. But guess what? I mean, my last major loss, I, I forgot whether it was April or June this year. Uh, yeah, so that was when we still didn't have the Thursday options. And uh, I mean, sure enough, so on a Wednesday, everything looked really good. The old options expiring on Wednesday, they looked good. So I already uh, sold the Friday options a little bit early on Wednesday. So you already had a little bit of an unraveling on Wednesday. And then Thursday and Friday, you had a 2% drop each day. And yeah, sure enough, lost some money on that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, most recently, I've been doing uh, the daily options. Um, and just because that that uh, that one loss that stung so badly, right, where I sold the options too early. So now what I'm doing is I'm actually doing a combination of intraday, so same day options. And I wait until pretty much the last 10, 15 minutes before market close to sell the uh, the one DTE options. And then obviously you, you lose uh, a lot of option income if you do that, right? Because I mean, you, if you sell it at, uh, at two hours before market close and the market does nothing, there's pretty significant decay in those last one to two hours for the, for the next day options, right? right. And um, so you lose a little bit through that by waiting until the very end. But uh, to make up a little bit for that, I do a little bit of small potato uh, same day options, and uh, that makes up for the loss. And it also gives me a little bit peace of mind uh, because, uh, yeah, a lot of things can go wrong the last two hours on a Thursday, and then overnight on Friday, and then the entire Friday, a lot can go wrong. And uh, so I, I, I now kind of have my my strategy dialed into. Do, yeah, I mean, as I said, do a little bit of same day trading uh, and then uh, uh, wait until pretty much market close. And sometimes I even sell after market close, right? Because there's an additional 15 minutes of trading. Uh, sometimes you also, if you are very leveraged, you have to wait until the margin is released again. That's you have right. to wait for about a 30 to 30 to 75 seconds sometimes uh, until that mar margin is released. So I might even do most of my trades between uh, so the, the last 10 minutes and then potentially uh, I do another two or three contracts the, uh, the after market close just to fill up my uh, my targets. Yeah, I've I've always done the right around 355 Eastern because oh, I, yeah. I always say I, I don't want to go into overnight marking red. It just annoys you. Right. So I've I've always been and obviously I, I do other stuff and I do zero DTE and in, intraday. So right. you know I, I have something on all all throughout. So um just and you basically kind of I was going to ask you a little bit about your methodology and and strategy which you you've gone into partially. Um what what delta are you doing? Or do, are you targeting more a credit right now? Right. So I'm targeting more a uh, a premium and not a delta. And what I what I like about that approach is so if you're targeting a delta, so strictly speaking, what what that means is that your your risk goes up and down roughly with the with the VIX, right? And right. Uh, I found that if I target a fixed premium, I uh, I would go up and down on the delta roughly to exactly invert the movements in the VIX. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a mathematical equality or, or identity, but it almost works out that way. So where is so and, and uh, so, so again, I would prefer to have a fixed risk rather than uh, a fixed delta because the delta, you still multiply that by the equity volatility, obviously, right? And uh, so, so that's why uh, right now I'm probably at uh, relatively low premiums, and my delta might be somewhere around two, so minus okay. zero point zero two. So, uh, just to give you uh, a general idea, so I try to do my premiums for a one day to expiration anywhere between say thirty cents to seventy five cents. Um, this is on SPX, right? This is on the yes. SPX, right? And this is for a one-day option. And then sometimes, if I if I feel really lucky, I I throw in just a few additional ones, maybe twenty five. I mean, twenty five cents is as low as I want to go for a for a one DTE 
option uh, for the same day. Uh, so for the intraday, so zero DTE options, I usually go somewhere between 15 to 30 cents. Um, and um, so again, it's a little bit of extra income. And then uh, I try to get maybe somewhere around 400 to $500 of premium per trading day. So this is the gross premium. And then every once in a while, you have a little bit of a loss. If I get to keep something like $300 a day, right? 250 trading days, so that's $75,000. And um, uh, then on top of that, right? I have an underlying portfolio with assets that are making me a little bit of money. So I uh, I do uh, a lot of uh, preferred shares. Most of them are floating rates uh, because I want to have a little bit of a hedge against, uh, against interest rate risk. So I, I, I actually... In, in a normal year, I should actually make more money from the uh, from the dividend income, from the preferred shares, than from the option trading. So, so think of it as the, the option trading right now, the way, at least the way I set it up uh, in my account, is, is really just to enhance the returns in that portfolio. And then basically milk this portfolio for additional returns. Think of it almost like a yield enhancement strategy. Yeah, I, I, call I don't want to call stacking. it a yield enhancement yeah. strategy because I, I wrote a blog post maybe a year or two ago. <laughs> I think UBS had this strategy called Yes, <laughs> Yield right. Enhancement Strategy. Yeah. And that Not good. horribly <laughs> blew up yeah. because they, yeah. they did these, uh, I think, iron condors or something like that. Yeah. And uh, they were telling the customers, oh, yeah, this is basically free money. And of course, they, it's a very long dated. And I think they didn't really manage uh, this. I don't think they Delta hedged it or they, they didn't manage it with, a, um, uh, with, a, with any kind of uh, uh, stop loss orders or anything like that. So it, it totally went against them in a very choppy market one year. And uh uh, so I, I don't want to call it yield enhancement strategy, but it it, it is it is exactly that. Yeah, uh, I, I call it, it a return stacking. You can say you're stacking the the option return on top of that that core right, right, return. Right, yeah. right, and, uh, and and again, it goes back to this uh, safe withdrawal rate study. So think of it as my portfolio in terms of the the the, the equity versus bond versus cash allocation. If I ignore the option trading for a while. Um, it would probably be something like a 75-25 portfolio, 75% stocks, 25% fixed income uh, outside of the real estate. Uh, and then I put on top of that an option trading strategy that makes a few percent extra uh, on top of that. And so just from a from a safe withdrawal rate analysis, right? I mean, your 75-25 portfolio probably gives you something like a 4% withdrawal rate, uh, give or take a few. Uh, depending on your uh, uh, on your personal preferences, but so imagine you could add an alpha of yeah. something like a two, percent, three, four, percent five, half, yeah. or even two percent on top of that, right? What what would they do to your safe withdrawal, right? So probably I wouldn't want to withdraw the entire alpha. Keep a little bit uh, as a cushion in case something really goes bad. But uh, yeah, I mean, as a, think about how much of a difference that makes in your uh, in your safe withdrawal, right? As a as an early retiree, to add this say percent and a half of extra return uh, to your portfolio, and of course, so I'm not saying that I'm making a percent and a half in my option trading portfolio. I'm I'm, I'm taking that option alpha and I spread it over my entire portfolio because I have a right. ton of other. Re uh, um, um, equity funds in retirement accounts. And, and in those accounts, I can't really do my interactive brokers um, option trading. So I have to scale the alpha a little bit higher in my taxable interactive brokers account uh, in order to get the say percent and a half, anywhere between a percent and a half and 2% probably extra alpha for my for my overall retirement portfolio. So that's, that's, my, that's my plan there. Okay. And a couple of quick clarifications. Right now, you are not using a stop loss. You're just letting it, you know, right. do what it's right. going to do, but figure and, the long term. Um, at least I'm not doing a formal stop loss, okay. but I have this year. So for example, imagine you sell a put at 50 cents and, um, and you sell that at the close. It takes quite a big move overnight to send this put to something like five or ten dollars uh, premium at the open, and um, but but I I have pulled the plug um, uh, a few times and uh, yeah so right in that range so say imagine I 
I sell a put at 50 cents. And uh, if there's a real total unraveling uh, overnight, um, yeah, I would I would potentially pull the plug. And it could be anywhere. It could be as low as $3. Uh, it could be as high as $7. But probably at $10, I, will, I might definitely pull the plug. Uh, I have done... I mean, funny thing is, if I look back, I also I, mean, I have a spreadsheet where I do my uh, my trade logs, and I look at well, what is my active, what is my alpha from these active trades, right? From from not letting them just expire, I think I've actually lost something like uh, thirteen, uh, somewhere between twelve and fourteen thousand dollars from these active trades. So in fact, a lot of times by doing the stop. Uh, I actually locked in the loss, and uh, I would have never lost money because in, in the end the index ended up above my uh, above the strike. So I, I've actually lost a little bit of money, but again, it's for peace of mind, and it's to to prevent that that really big uh, kind of widow maker loss. Yeah. Yes. Um, so. And uh, it's I'm I'm willing to pay that, and it's uh, it's it's worth it in the end, obviously. Yeah, certainly. And one of the point I want to ask about, and and again to to be clear for people listening that are new or don't, you know, in all my episodes where right, I always stress the risk management, sizing, and this is not free money by any right. means, right? right? What What is your typical notional exposure that, that you're willing to go up to um, in aggregate? Oh, right. So I would probably be willing to go up to something like 3x okay. leverage. So and but then again, so these are one day trades, very far out of the money. So it, it's not like I can the, the S and P is not going to go down by thirty three percent in uh, overnight. Um, it, it will go down by thirty three percent. It went down thirty three percent very quickly in twenty twenty uh, in, in February March. Uh, which, by the way, that was one of my best months. Uh, I made a ton of money in in March uh, of 2020, and uh, it's actually the the bigger risk is probably these choppy markets that you had um, earlier in uh, uh, in 2022, and um, I, I don't I don't have any good backtesting that I can do in 2008 and 2009. But uh, I have the feeling, considering that volatility was already so high, that uh, I think I, I would have done even pretty well in 2008 and 2009 with this kind of strategy. So um, uh, yeah, so I, I I don't do formal stop losses. But uh, I I have it in the back of my mind, and and I'm I'm up at six thirty in the morning as I, we get up, uh, and I check my option quotes, and so what, what I'm a little bit worried about a stop loss that you automatically initiate is that there's something wrong at the open right where the is basically almost like a flash crash at the open, and then it quickly recovers and it basically knocks out your stop losses and. Uh, I even if there is a big drop overnight, I would like the market to see maybe you settle it down for a few minutes, and um, then uh, uh, then I'll decide if if I want to stay in. And then, by the way, if I get out, right, I'll, I'll then sell something intraday. So it's basically I'm I'm rolling down the uh, the strikes to to a slightly lower strike. Uh, I'll I'll still be in for the day, uh, uh, even even if I get stopped out. Yeah, no, that makes sense, and and like. Sometimes when I'm talking about the strategy or, or in general, I, and this has never happened, but I, I say for sizing, think about what if there was a 20% gap down. Again, it hasn't happened, but let's just say there was. And just put in context, like let's say you sold 5% out of the money and we gapped down 15, 20%, you're 15% in the money. So even at 300% notional, you know, you'd be down 45%, but that's not bankrupt, right? right? So that's why ultimately the sizing is kind of the ultimate backstop. Right. For right, this, right. and um, exactly. and, exactly. and when I and and are you how are you on time? By the way, I know we're we're coming up. Oh no, 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 I'm good. Okay, I'm good. okay good. Uh, so when I approached you originally, you know, so many years ago was back when you were doing the two to three DTE, and I was taking that and I was doing different back tests and experiments with the stop loss, and I, and I, and I showed you some of the results, and I I think something to uh, just to tell people like like you said when you do stops there are times when in hindsight you didn't need to get stopped out right but that's in hindsight of yeah. course and, and in the moment depending on what your goals are it's more about the risk management the drawdown management right. and there are there, there's sort of a trade-off where like if you have a stop 
and you do the back test, you can look at the Mar ratio, right? The, the Kager to drawdown. And where if you can improve the Mar ratio, you can almost lever up some more and maybe increase the returns and still exactly. contain. So there's different things. Right. And, and one thing that's really interesting, which you may you may or may not have implemented, but that's I found really interesting, and I mentioned it in my my episode that I just aired this morning, is that with the shorter dated options, you can get a very cheap wing. I'm talking about five cents, right? right? That's the, sure, the cheapest sure. possible. And I and haven't looked at in high IV, but just yesterday, five cents is about eleven percent um or ten percent out of the money. Pretty right, good. Right, right. And um I do spreads or it's a calendarized spread on, on my 90 DT. But for example, if I'm willing to pay up to 5% on the premium, right? So for $5, I'm willing to pay, you know, 20, 25 cents. You can get a wing that's six, 7% out of the money. Yep, and yep. the interesting thing is, let's say you have 100% exposure or notional, but you limit your wing width to, you know, let's just call it 10% out of the money. That means that no matter how bad it gets, you capped that drawdown right. on that capital to 10%. So you could double the exposure or triple the exposure and still kind of contain that right. risk. So I think there's two things that are, have been interesting lately is one, we'll talk about the stops in a second, but the cheap wing on the short dated, I think it might make sense. You know, It gives right. you the extra piece of mind and it is really cheap right. because um, one interesting, and this goes back to the whole idea of how I got inspired with the premium capital because you mentioned, let's say you try to get $500 a day Ideally, you're trying to get three to four hundred dollars a day in net, and so you wrote about that in the blog. And like, you know, the whole idea of like it gives you because when you're trying to build this into your model with the SWR and the withdrawal rate, how much are you actually trying to make, right? So, right. and obviously, past returns doesn't guarantee future performance, yada yada. But it is a model that lets you kind of anticipate the level of income you're trying to generate, right? This whole idea of right. premium capture or the expectancy. Yep. And right. all of these things that I've done with tinkering with different stop losses, and I, I, I've been sharing my results um, for using Optional Mega, right? There's a lot of robust backtesting softwares available now. And especially with a very simple put writing strategy, it is feasible to iterate through different wing widths, different stop loss, if someone's mm -hmm. so inclined. And because the stop loss, it's more about kind of shaping the expectancy, shaping the distribution of the outcomes to kind of create a path, right? Because you're going to have, with no stops, a very lumpy path. I mean, you're, you're, you're going up most of the time, right? 90% of the time, and then right. boom, you get hit, right? And, right. and then now long-term, that looks fine. But like you said, in the interday, it may be scary. Like, you don't know, oh, how, how much is it going to drop today? You know, but... Um, just for the audience out there, if people want to apply something like this, you know, you can do back test, you can look at it, having the stop. Uh, I'm right now I'm doing, you know, uh, a 400% stop loss, which is, which is actually pretty wide. Um, mm -hmm. because, and I'm selling a higher Delta or for my current version where I'm doing the 15 Delta, right? I, I clicked it. You know, you're talking about 50 cents. I clicked it like $5, right? So it's, right. it's almost 10 X yeah. the premium, but at the right. same time. 400% stop loss, which is 5x the credit, means I have to stop out at like $25. It's pretty hard to get up there, like, like you were saying. Right. Um, but, but again, it's it's just, um, and obviously, you know, what you've done has been successful for, I don't know, 10, has, have you been doing for like 10 years almost? Uh, 11 years. 11 yeah. years. Okay. So th that obviously works, but, but, but for people who want to explore this, there is some tinkering you can do to sort of maybe shape that equity path in a way that more suits kind of, kind of the risk tolerance. And, and that's been why I thought to reach out to you to, to right. get you on to talk about the genesis of all of this. And then I restarted my, I restarted it, right. And, and I call it the, the, the ERN put or the earn put. So, and and then I'm, I'm looking forward to see how that plays out and, and people can get an idea of like, figure out, Hey, where does this all come from? And kind of what's the idea and different ways to, and again, adding it, it, if I look at the equity path, it, it is a hundred percent. There's no correlation. It's just, it's like a right. straight line. Right? right. Um, And so it is, it is pure alpha, pure alpha. So that's really nice. And this idea that you can stack this on top um, because right. with my podcast, I've been exploring like different ways to combine different uncorrelated. Like I got rid of my index funds. I, I, I bought some, uh, I, I did buy DBMF. We talked about the other day a little bit, you know, just to, just to have something, you know, whether or not that's going to be the best thing for the next few years or whatever. But I think the idea of like taking different pieces and, and learning about uncorrelated, 
return streams. So that's that's kind of been where my journey, how how it intersected with 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 your work again. Um, but looking forward to how things go. I know you update on. There's only really so much to say because you're you're literally doing the same thing every day. But I right. think you do give like a update once in a while when like right. <laughs> you gave an update in 2018. You wrote that inter- interesting title. It was like I, I forget. It was like how I escaped or how I right. didn't lose money. Uh, trading like an escape artist. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you update that when there's some changing in the strategy right. or evolution right. or just right. maybe people ask enough about in the comments like, "Hey, how did it go?" That like yeah. you figure yeah. it's a yeah. uh, it's a time for an update, I guess. Right, right. And yeah, I, I wonder, so if I do the update now, well, it's towards the end of the year, maybe I'll do an update early next year, and then I have the whole year uh, returns in there. Because it's obviously, uh, I have to admit that uh, 2022 was a little bit of a of an icky year. So the, it's still positive, capture, right? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm up. Uh, okay. I think I'll, I'll be up something like 5% within that option trading account and then if i spread it over my uh over my overall portfolios so added something like a 1.5% alpha uh but yeah i mean i i had some yeah some bad days uh in so april may and june i think i had some small losses nothing nothing life ending or strategy ending losses uh, but, uh, yeah, then I, I think I also tinkered a little bit. I think I've taken the risk down a little bit, the, uh, the, uh, trading a little bit, uh, the number of contracts is a little bit higher and the, the premium is a little bit lower. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I'll probably do, uh, an update and then also the, the underlying assets, uh, I switched around a little bit. So I think, yeah, it would be good to, uh, to do an update, uh, early next year and, uh, and showcase what, what I've been up to. Uh, uh you were about to say, did, did you track, I guess what, uh, let's say the year and then now, what, what kind of the, the premium capture or, you know, of this year yeah. be? Yeah. So I'm just under 40% for my overnight options. So for every $100 of premium, I captured uh, $40. And then the same day contracts, is, uh, I think it's even slightly below 20%. I think it's 18 or 19% premium capture. And I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? You see, I'm, tr- I'm selling at maybe 15 to 30 cents. And all it takes is just uh, one bad day that wipes out, uh, say, $2 or so stop loss on that. Uh, that takes out a lot of uh, money, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean overall, I think it's it's still still has been a good year, uh, <laughs> and uh, so we'll you know see. what's you know what's funny? Uh, you said it was a bad year, but and and it's different depending on the strategy. But forty percent in my world is extremely good, and some <laughs> of the strategies, you know, depending right. on right how much you pay for the wing because i i consider wing costs a subtraction from the 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 top line premium okay. depending on the right. slippage and everything right. but like right. certain strategies i i consider 18 to 20 percent solid that's kind of the right. gold standard sure. but yeah, with exactly. with these short data options i've in the test i've i've seen north of 50 percent right with no stops but again you get the lumpy distribution and, and just for context the one i'm running now with the um 15 delta 40% stop loss running from 2013 to 2022 that's right around a, a total capture of 38.7%. Now that doesn't count for a slippage wow. in fees so the, in reality it should be a little bit lower than that. But the interesting thing is if you know let's say you're paying like a fixed 5% on a wing just to curb the black right. swan risk you can just kind of subtract that from the top line. I expect just to give up 5% of the capture sure. which is sure. fine right because that lets you leverage up which means you can maybe have a higher PL. but Forty-four percent. You th- that was good. That was that was a really solid number. So like again, it gives yeah. you that idea of again, you can't guarantee it. It's going to be lumpy, but you have a context of kind of that 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 income level. Um, so do, for example, during the really calm years, uh, two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty-one, I think I both one was a little bit over ninety percent, the other wow. one was just under ninety percent premium, which is just insane. Um, I, I and, remember there was um, a year you wrote one blog post that said, knock on wood, I haven't yeah. had a stop yet this year. I, I think yeah. you have one ultimately at some point, but it was still right. really good right. that right. year. And then 2020, it was 2020, I think was my most profitable year in dollar terms. 
Uh, but um, the, the percentage was a little bit reduced because I, I did a lot of uh, tr additional trading in March. So I had a big loss in February. Again, not a, not a life-ending loss in February because there's a kind of the vol builds up slowly and then you get your first loss. And then vol is so high that uh, pretty much whatever you sell, you make money on it. Uh, so And then I did a, a lot of additional trading. So the total dollar amount is still the best in 2020, but the percentage is not quite as good uh, as, as in some of the calm years. Uh, yeah, but I, overall, I think I'm at something like, I'm still at over 60% average uh, premium capture. Wow, okay. And the previous worst year was 2018, so that was also at about 38%. And uh, now I'm at uh, also 38% with the overnights. And uh, so intraday is a little bit, I do, I mean, obviously the the intraday is relatively small. So I'm probably still in at maybe 35% overall premium capture. So it's a, it's the worst so far, but uh, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm still making enough money from the options and from the dividends that I don't, I don't have to sweat anything right now. So. Yeah, good, good to hear. Well, I am going to look forward to your update at some point. Um, I, you know, like I said, did the episode. I have my own trading page. My my log is live, so people can follow that. Um, you know, over time, I may share some our research just to get your thoughts on it once in a while. But, um, Karsten, I wanted to. Thank you again for for coming on. There's a lot of insights. It was interesting to hear again your background, where everything came from, and uh, it's cool to see where where some of our research and strategies intersect. And um, looking forward to see how that goes on and plays out. And uh, but thank you so much for for taking the time to to chat today. Yeah, thanks for having me.